Thanks, girls, very much. First Thessalonians. Let's journey back to that small letter in the New Testament. If you have a device with this Bible on it, uh, you can go there. If you need a paper copy of God's Word to follow along, we can provide that for you. Just slip up your hands and the ushers will find you. Um, maybe someone's with you that can share their Bible. How about if we just make a pact with each other regarding the weather? No more talking about cold. No more joking about cold. No more, no more pulpit comments about the cold and frozen, okay? Let's just, let's just let it go. All right. Someone's going to laugh in about 20 minutes out loud, <laughs> and everyone's going to think that I said something funny then, but it wasn't. My son Noah tells me, he says, Dad, I don't know why people laugh at you. He said, you can say the dumbest things and they just laugh. <laughs> he said, he said you've, got, you've got the whole church under your spell. He said, because you don't say anything funny. He said, but they all laugh. No. So, it's, see, it's true, right, Noah? Right, right, right. <laughs> Oh, a friend of mine called me this week and he says, you know, uh, there's a little town just outside of Ann Arbor, Michigan, and it's in it's a little town called Hell and, it, and it's frozen over. <laughs> so if you've made any promises <laughs> with that cliche, Tim, you're in big trouble. So anyways, we'll let it go. All right. Let's pray together. We should start there, actually, after that, right? All right. Father in heaven, we ask your help today as we open your word and we study it. Um, this is your book that you've inspired and you've preserved for us. And today we just pray that as your people, as we look at it, that we can um, understand a little bit more how to live it. As we look for the imminent return of our Savior as we anticipate that reunion with him. May that anticipation um, and the degree of that anticipation grow more and more. And as it grows, may our ability to live as we await his return become more biblical, more Christ-like, as we help each other live in light of his return. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So our theme for this year, you know I like to set a theme usually for our year, and it's looking and living. Looking and living. The more, for those of you who are guests, we, the Bible teaches that the Lord Jesus is coming again. Um, you may have sung and read some words uh, in our hymns this morning, the hymns that Pastor Mike picked about the sufficient sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, shedding his blood on the cross for our sin. Um, we know that he's the Lamb of God that came to die to take away my sin, your sin, the sin of the whole world, 1 John 2 says. And when you own him as your Savior, he changes your life. When you turn from your own pride and your own sinfulness and you just accept his perfection into your life and you invite him into your life, 
when God looks at you now, he no longer sees Tim Potter or Steve Sindelar or Kay Bear. He sees Jesus. And it's wonderful to know that when God looks at us, he sees the perfection of his son, not the imperfection of me or you. Right? And the Bible says that he gives that gift of salvation, being saved from our sins for free. He did all the work on the cross. He died your death. He died my death so that we might live. Just through him. Right? The payment for sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And so it's, it's hard to grasp that something so huge could be simplified like that, but it's true. Uh, he gave his life so that you might live. And because he's done so much for us, and like 1 Peter 1.8 says, blessed are those who have never seen him, but yet believe in him. Right? We are blessed because of what he's done for us, even though we've never looked into his eyes or touched his wounds that he incurred for us. We're overwhelmed with his love for us, and we can't wait to see him. Really? Right? You really can't wait to see someone you really love. And so much more for us who are looking for the Lord Jesus to return. So the Bible says that he could return at any moment. And no one really knows the hour or the day. Jesus said that himself. Only the Father knows that. God the Father. But we live with a great anticipation. And there's a lot of things that help us in the Word of God live in a Christ-like fashion today and tomorrow. And in the future in the Bible, all of them are gifts of God's grace. One of those uh, is anticipation of seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. That anticipation is a motivator. It compels us to live in a certain way. And that's really what the whole letter of Thessalo to the Thessalonians is. We notice that all five chapters finish with a mention of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was a young church that was really excited about seeing Jesus, so they helped each other live the Christian life every day. These people were not loners. They weren't lone rangers, right? They weren't mavericks. They, weren't, they were doing the Christian life together as a church family, and we noticed that. And uh, we divided the whole letter up into three uh, simple sections. We talked about uh, the looking for the Lord Jesus Christ compels us to faithful living, and, and we considered the source of that faithfulness, which is God himself. That's the nature of faithfulness. Then we've been looking at various ways that that faithfulness is nurtured. The nature of faithfulness comes from God, right? Faithful is he who has called you to his son, who also will work in your life. That's 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 24. He is faithful. God is light. God is love. God is all of his attributes. And he is faithful. In other words, he can't help himself but be faithful to you because he's faithful to his son who is in you. And whatever he's called you to his son, whatever he's called you to in faithful living, by his grace, he's going to be the divine assist. <laughs> and then he gives us a family along with his word to pursue this Christ-like living together as we expectantly await to see the Lord Jesus. So the, the nature of faithfulness is found in God himself. 
the nurturing of this faithfulness, we found out in the last couple weeks, is a, it's a personal nurturing. When someone comes to know Christ as their Savior, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, right? They, they need to follow someone more spiritually mature than they are. Okay. That's right there in verse 6. And in verse 7 of chapter 1, then they become an example to someone else less spiritually mature than they. Right? We do this personal spiritual journey together. We found out in chapter 2 that there's a disposition. How do we lead and follow each other according to God's word as we expectantly await to see Jesus? We do it gently. We do it kindly, lovingly, discerningly. And we looked at those verses in chapter 2. We found out in chapter 3 that the nurturing of this consistent living every day as we await to see the the Lord Jesus in the clouds at this great reunion the Bible talks about, it's reciprocal. It's not only personal and dispositional, or disposition, it's kind and gentle, persevering. It's reciprocal. It's chapter three, we grow each other's faith by helping each other face affliction and temptation, and we grow spiritually together. We saw that last time. We never face any part of life merely alone. We face affliction, temptation, and spiritual growth together. In chapter 4 and verse 3, we find out that the nurturing of this faithfulness has, has a moral, right? A moral aspect to it. As we await the Lord Jesus Christ, there, that anticipation compels us in verse 3. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification or your set-apartness. In other words, how do you live counterculturally to this world? What kind of power? What kind of power has God given you when you turn your life over to Jesus to live differently than the world lives? That's what exactly what sanctification means, right? So this is the will of God, even your being set apart from how the world lives, that you abstain from what? Sexual immorality. That's what the text says. Remember we went over that last time? That it's really not, it's, it's not normal for the world to live in a sexually pure way. A lot of us didn't come to know Jesus as our Savior until later in life. And, and we really had, outside being made in the image of God, we really had very little self-control when it came to governing our, our passions for intimacy. Right? You know, we don't even have to read statistics. They're readily available if you just Google them, right? Of how, how rampant uh, sexual immorality is in our culture. Okay? But those who are living life with Christ in them and living life with others around them who are living life with Christ in them, do this together. That we do have the ability to live differently than our culture does. And it's not your ability, it's not my ability, it's God's ability through us. Okay? This is the will of God. Verses 3 through 8 of chapter 4 just really explain, it details out the why and the how that we live out this moral purity and 
And um, you have to understand, folks, in this culture in the first century, when Paul writes the, Thessalon the, the Thessalonian church, you have to understand how kind of dark it was at that time. So like in that culture, some people would even go to church to be immoral in the name of worshiping of their gods, okay? So it's kind of really gross. People would go to church to sleep with a neighbor at church in the name of worship, right? So think about it. So these people are now, they, Jesus changes their life. So they're going to go to church in a different way now. Like a dramatically different way. So they actually could be sitting in church now with somebody that they had been immoral with in the name of worship two weeks ago. But Jesus changed their life. And so he says in verses 3 through 8, don't defraud the brother or the sister that may be in the same room with you like you did before you knew Jesus because now Jesus has set you apart to live in a way that honors him. Amen. Right? But it's only him that gives you the ability to do that. Amen. Don't take pride. Don't be arrogant. Don't be caustic. Don't be angry with the culture that lives in an immoral way because, folks, that's just what people without Jesus do. That's where you would be, and that's where I would be, and that's where we were without Jesus. Let's own it and face it and be honest with it. Amen. But with him, we have divine help. Only miraculous help from heaven can fill our lives with enough grace to live contrary to the culture. Right? Okay. So we need Jesus. We need his word, and we need people, the text tells us, who know Jesus, who are growing in understanding of his word as a third layer of either even help to help us live counter to this culture. Why do so many Christians still fail in the aspect of sexual impurity when Jesus is in them? We need Jesus. He's enough. But then the Bible says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of his mouth. So we need his word. And then the text tells us that we've pointed out multiple times, we still have been graced with a third layer of help to live contrary to this culture. And it's each other. Okay? Are you with me? Amen. All right. Can Christians fail Morally, yes, they can. Is it too late then? Is it over for them then? No. Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in the Corinthian culture. Many had fallen who were once saved. They're still saved. But you know in your heart that you can't really live in an immoral way and be a Christian and be a happy person. You know. We know. Right? Right? It's never too late to do the right thing after you know Christ. All I'm saying is confess it to the Lord, walk away from it, get back to him, get back to his word, and get back to people in the local church that can give us the, the assist to get through this old world. Uh, because what Paul's saying here, he knows is an extreme measure. 
He knows it's extreme compared to the culture, as we know it's extreme in our very over-sensualized culture. And, and we don't need to go into the details of how it's over-sensualized. It's, it's a completely saturated culture. Where the most recent statistics tell us less than 5% Less than 5% of those who exchange vows would have never been immoral in their lifetime, though. Less than 5%. Now, Paul knew that. That was the nature in Rome. That was the culture in Corinth. That was the culture in Thessalonica. That was most of our culture before we came to know Jesus. That's forgiven. But now what do we do? Now what do we do? It's pretty clear here. The grammar's even pretty clear here. For this is the what? This is God's will. Remember before sin came into the world, Genesis 1 and 2? God made a man for a woman for life. And then sin came into the world in chapter 3 and kind of blew up God's plan. But it didn't blow it up. It just kind of, in man's eyes, altered it. But God's original plan, this is the will of God that you abstain from, okay? But remember, we do this in a nurturing environment. Don't go this, don't go this old world alone. Don't do it, okay? I can't go this alone, We do need the Lord, His Word, and each other. Don't go it alone. Amen. Don't go it alone, folks. John says in his letter, the world is passing away and its lusts, but those who do the will of God abide forever. Those, plural, those who do this together understand that it's against the normal activity of our culture, but... Well, there's a special joy that's in a person's life that doesn't go it alone. You know, there's a special, if he had, we, we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. We, and folks, I say this as a, as a, as a pastor who, I, I hope you know that I love you. I hope you know uh, that that'll never change, okay? I was a youth pastor for 15 years. And I sat in my office talking to teenager after teenager after teenager. And as a pastor, many adults who are just broken. The, the, the sin of immorality has kind of broken their lives. Now it's breaking down their bodies, right? <laughs> Paul says that, that sexual sin is the only sin that actually destroys the body physically. It does something to it that no other sin does. I think every sin affects the body, but there's something unique about sexual sin that destroys the body in a very unique way. So you're weeping with people, you're agonizing with people, teenagers, kids now, like middle school, junior high, and, and they're just broken over what this sin has done. And boy, it certainly didn't look sinful going into it, but now uh, the consequences, right? And you're, and you're working through the consequences with them and your heart just aches. It aches, but I will tell you every single instance where a believer 
fell back into a sinful lifestyle in this way, I'll guarantee you every single time they stopped talking with God for a while, they definitely got away from his word personally for a while, and every single one of them consequently was walking life alone. Every single one had all three inactions in their life. Okay? Hey, listen, those of you who walk with the Lord and love his word and don't walk alone, it's still hard sometimes, isn't it? Be honest, isn't it? Could you imagine what it would be like facing this old over-centralized world without those three things? It is impossible. You will fall. It's just what happens, but the Lord Jesus Christ and himself and his word and each other has given us enough resources to function in a pure way in our culture. Are you with me? All right? And it's not just personal and dispositional and reciprocal and moral. It's really familial. It's all about our family. Look with me, if you would, at uh, chapter number 5 and verse 11. We've highlighted this uh, with you before, and, and uh, Paul's commending these people. Remember, we said all five chapters, he's not leveling one criticism against these people. He's finding a really healthy group of people that are helping each other walk through this old world together. And then he says in verse 11, therefore, encourage one another, chapter 5, verse 11, and build up one another. It's a common Greek word or word that Paul would use to uh, really how, how their, their ears would have heard it was like this, right? You're building a structure and uh, you're missing a, a bolt <laughs> or a hinge uh, or, or uh, a significant piece uh, to that engine or that edifice, right? That building. And, and uh, you provide for each other the missing piece to make sure the structure can be complete. That's the idea of building one another up. All the pieces are necessary. What does he say here, though? Just as you also are doing. The reason why they were being spiritually successful is because they were doing this together. And then he divides the congregation up into three different sections in chapter 5 and verse 14. Right? Remember, this is a familial effort. This is what we do together. He says, we urge you, brethren, and you know the way Paul writes, whenever he uses that word brethren, he's speaking to people that have turned from themselves and replaced self with Christ. We urge you, brethren, all right, strong word, urge, and then he uses another strong word here, admonish, and this word admonish, if they would have understood it in this culture, would have mean you've got to talk to each other, actually. This is not, this is not a text. The word admonish, if I can tell you in this context or even in that context, they didn't have phones, so it couldn't have been a text, right? <laughs> it wasn't a phone call. They didn't have phones. It wasn't an email, right? It wasn't a social media post. It wasn't addressing someone through a podcast. Right? Admonish in this culture has to mean the same thing to us in our culture. It means you're going to be speaking to them face to face. That's what the Greek term means here. You've got to be with somebody. And then there's three kinds of people in the church. They're listed here. And all of us probably fit 
under one of these categories. So let's just discern for ourselves, draw the circle around yourself, where do you fit in this verse as a brother or sister in Christ, right? So here we go. We urge you, all of you Christians, communicate face-to-face -to, -face to the unruly. If you just want to mark off in your, in, your, in your Bible in the margin or in your notes, the unruly here would have been the lazy. Okay? If you really want to know what unruly is, it's not just unruly in general, it's unruly in specific. These were people who were just lazy. What does lazy mean in this culture? These were people that, that would have quit their jobs and lived on, they could have worked, but they were living on government help, whatever the assist was back then. Or they were living on family money. Probably more family money in this culture than government help. We understand government help, right? In our culture. These were people, you know, when, when Paul says in, in, the, in, in God's word, if a man is not going to work, then he shouldn't eat, right? If a man should not work or a head of a home, right? Or if a single person should not work, they're, sure, they're not going to eat. Or you got to work to eat. You got to earn your keep. That's not just old-fashioned. That's biblical, <laughs> okay? For a married guy, Paul says in his pastorals that if he doesn't work and take care of his family, he's kind of worse than an unbeliever. So in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, it became somewhat of an epidemic problem in this church. It's not yet when Paul writes his first letter, but it would become that. And he says, listen, you've got to mark those people who are lazy and have quit their jobs and who aren't working because they're disobedient. And if you want to cross-reference in the margin of your Bible, if you're a newer believer, maybe you've been in Christ maybe just days or a week, Write down in the margin of your Bible, Genesis chapter 3, okay? Because after sin came into the world, all right, God gave a certain command to Adam. And he was going to work. He worked before sin came into the world, but now it was going to be a different, a different context, a different environment. It was going to be tough. It was going to be hard. He was going to sweat. He wasn't going to like it. Right? And then, right in the margin of your Bible, if you're a new believer, first. Peter chapter 2, verse 21, all right, to 24. You might not always have a great boss. It's no glory for you if you could work hard for a good boss. The glory is when you got a bad boss and you can work for them faithfully. And then Peter gives us the example of Christ who labored hard for us. Anyways, the unruly here are the lazy. And, and praise the Lord, because you're a strong congregation... I don't think that there's like any unruly people here that are lazy. I think our jobless rate is slim to none, right, Pastor? I, yeah, praise God that you guys are really strong in this area. And I think it's a testimony of you guys not going it alone with the Lord, his word, or each other's. But that's what this means here, okay? Word you admonish those who are unruly. It says here, encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage the faint-hearted. Can I tell you what faint-hearted means? And if you say no, I'm still going to tell you. So that's a, that's a silly question, okay? So faint-hearted just means someone who has a hard time of reaching their spiritual goals. As these people would have understood it, if you go back and look at the grammar of this word within its context within that era, this would have been someone who was a goal-setter that had a hard time reaching their goals. But in this context, it's not just academic goals or social goals or political goals or vocational goals. It's spiritual goals. 
How many of us really, don't raise your hand, struggle meeting our spiritual goals? Right? All right, Lord, I'm going to read this much of the Bible this year. You get through the end of January and, I got to take all day on February 5th to catch up what I missed in January. Right? I got this Bible app that tells me now what a failure I am. When you open it up, you lost your streak at three days. Well, I'm talking to my phone out loud on the airplane. Well, you don't know that I have a paper version too. Getting all defensive talking to my phone on an airplane. Seriously, that happened this last week. I'm sure people thought I was a little weird talking to my phone. You know, what do you know about streaks? Piece of... <laughs> Right? Bible reading, that happens, right? You know, Lord, you used your word to convict my heart about maybe some language that I used in the past that I didn't know was wrong, but, you know, my viewing habits, my listening habits, my verbal habits, right? We're not talking about perfectionism. We're just talking about growth in Christ-likeness, right? And we set out, we have those spiritual goals. The truth is, folks, well, I know there might be... Um, Different things, as I understand this word in this context, there would have been degrees of those who were faint-hearted. Encourage the faint-hearted. This is not just someone who perpetually failed at reaching their spiritual goals. The assumption is here, all of us are going to fail at some measure, some more than others. But, face-to-face, admonish those who had goals and who have failed and put your arm around them, sit down, pray with them, tell them you failed too, and then get up and go walk together. Don't do it alone. Okay? Don't do it alone. And I'm talking to some folks here that I've known for decades, and some of you are still going this old thing alone. So as a pastor, based on this context, my heart aches for you because I know you can't be be thriving well. I know you're not. And I love you when I tell you that. No one wants you to go through life without an assist. God does it. So don't. You're missing out on so much, you know. All right. That's the faint-hearted. I'm there. <laughs> so help me. And you are. And it says here, help the weak. Now, this word weak is an interesting word. And you're going to find theologians disagreeing on this word. I, I will tell you who. I will tell you the two ways that this word's interpreted. Then I'll tell you which way it's interpreted the most. Because when I was taught in seminary, he said, you're going to have some authors disagree on the interpretation of a word or a phrase. But he said, get a bunch of good guys in front of you that know their stuff. And then uh, my seminary professor in hermeneutics said, pick from good people the most common application. So that's what I'm going to do, okay? The word weak here, um, most people believe this to mean physically weak physically weak, okay? This would be people in the church maybe with chronic illness. 
How many of you are in the church this morning with a chronic incurable illness as of right now? There's sciences, medicines come up with no way. Would you just raise your hand? Get them up real high. Look around. Some of you are just shoulder high. No one can see you. Get them up high. Yours is shoulder high, sweetheart. Get it up higher. All right? Look around you, folks. Look around you. Admonish. Admonish the physically weak. In discipleship, we do that. You folks that have chronic illnesses, you know the agony that life can be. You know. You don't know how you're going to feel one hour to the next, let alone one day to the next, right? It could be a sudden attack that lays you out for three days. My wife has Crohn's disease. What's the doc say? After surgery, we don't know what causes it, so we don't know what cures it. So you're on your own. Figure out what you can and can't eat. And make sure you get, get, some, get south every winter for at least two to three weeks to get some vitamin D because we do know that helps Crohn's patients. Okay? And he looked at me and he said, Tim, if you love your wife, get her to Arizona or get her to Florida in January or February every year for two to three weeks. He said, if you don't, you probably don't love your wife. So apparently I haven't loved her very well because I have not done that, right? He was mean. (laughs) I love her. He should know that, right? You guys have different, guys and gals have different chronic diseases and, and you have no hope that they're going to go away, right? We have Cleveland Clinic, University Hospitals. We have some pretty well-known phenomenal places of medicine and and they can't help you, can't cure you. Admonish the weak. They struggle. That's why we have the grace sufficient study, right? As often as we can, those with chronic illness get together and they're, they're already discipling outside of that meeting. But then we've even added that meeting. God's grace is sufficient for you. How can you be God's divine assist to one another to help walk through this, admonish the weak? I believe that's really primarily what's being said here. Uh, there's, a, there's a reference that I'm sure our interpreter won't be able to say, but it's Luo and Nida. That's the reference where I think is most accurate here as to the, the, the definition of this word weak. Um, the other it just really attaches this word weak to uh, people who are just spiritually weak, but I think that's already referenced in the word faint-hearted here, okay? That's why I'm going to go with the preponderance of of authority here, I think, which is help the physically weak. And remember, too, when you back out to look at the whole letter, Paul's not bringing any criticism against these people, so I don't think we have people chronically failing. We have people who struggle from time to time meeting their spiritual goals, but we always have people who are physically weak, and we've got to regularly admonish those good-hearted, physically weak people. And you folks do that in some really some very amazing extreme ways. I am amazed how you help each other in that way. But the final phrase here of verse 14 is very, very clear. He says, be patient with everyone. So whether we're lazy and we struggle with laziness or whether we're faint-hearted or whether we're patient, the understanding is here, even though we might be by nature lazy and struggle reading our spiritual goals and we can't really 
do anything but persevere through physical weakness. We are too, and this church did. They had developed a level of patience with these people. They found a way to not go it alone um, with each other. And, and, you know, when I was growing up as a pastor's kid, my dad was a pastor for 34 years, and I grew up in a pastor's home, obviously, and so I became a pastor. I was a youth pastor for 15 years here, and then I became the pastor here in 06. Um, it was common. It was common in our church culture that if there was someone who was unruly or faint-hearted or weak, that whenever a situation with that person arose, who would get the first call? The pastor. You got to call the pastor. You got to get the pastor's help. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but let me tell you how that culture's changed here, and I still I think it's even healthier than before. Often, I'm the last person who gets informed. And I want to let you know, I'm glad you informed me, but I'm, I'm not disappointed I'm the last. Because you know what's happening long before I get called? What's happening? You're all being patient with one another. The discipler gets called first, or the disciplee gets called first. And then it might be the Bible study fellowship that gets called next. And you guys have already gotten care for one another well on the road. It's, oh yeah, we should probably call pastor and let him know what's going on, right? And that's fine too. But that's the difference. That's what was happening here in Thessalonica. I'm pretty confident with understanding of the whole of all five chapters. These folks were not going it alone. They were going it together. All five chapters, remember, there's not one direct address to the pastor of this church or pastors of this church. These are God's people doing church together. All right? Be patient with one another. And you are. And years ago, a lot of pastors went through some pretty serious burnout because they did get all the calls. And I'll guarantee you, whether you have a church of 10 people or 1,010, no one pastor can handle that load. But we were taught we were supposed to. Honestly, that's what our seminary professors in our CA courses, our church administration courses taught us. Shoulder the load. When life gets too rough as a pastor, just ask God for bigger shoulders to carry the burden. Life gets rough, pastor, be God's man. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps and get this done. Be a man. Be a man. And we're like, okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Right? Okay. We didn't know that what we were taught was wrong, so we were just doing it. I say wrong. Imbalanced. Imbalanced at best. But I'll tell you what, you folks have done so much to keep our load reasonable because you do minister to each other. You're not going it alone. So keep doing what you're doing and only excel more and more. Okay? We're going to have a pastor with us all week. They're coming in in the morning. A dear friend of mine, he's from New Jersey, 25 years, right? He stood up in front of his people the Sunday before Christmas, December 23rd, and he said, I resign. 
His deacons didn't know. The people didn't know. The Sunday before Christmas, it's just done. Right? Super great guy. You'll see he and his wife this week and his kids, sweetest people ever. You know what the outcry of the people was? They were shocked. Because they love him. They didn't want him to go. So Monday morning after he resigned, I got a call from the chairman of their leadership group. He said, you're not going to believe this. He goes, but here we are, and we're scared to death. And now now listen to the dynamic of this, because I think this is the stage four cancer of a lot of churches of our stripe, right? The pastor goes, if he leaves, he goes, I'm leaving because the deacons are tired. And we can't carry this church on. So we're going to close the doors. Right? 125, 140 people faithfully serving the Lord there. Great testimony in the community. And the only reason, the only reason, the only reason this is happening, because there's physical and emotional exhaustion. These are godly people, physically and emotionally exhausted. When I was growing up, it was common, and some of you might recognize this. We've mentioned it before. You know, in, in, the, old, in the, old, the, ways, the, old, the old ways to do churches, 20% of the people do what? You finish it. 80% of the work. Well, guess who the 20% usually are? The pastor and his family and the deacons and their families. And maybe a handful of a healthy few outside of that. Well, in the old days, pastor says, I resign. And in that situation, when that's left up to the deacons, they're part of that 20%. So what do they say? I can't do it. <clears throat> right? So, praise the Lord. Fast forward the videotape, right? What do you call it? No, it's not videotape. What do you call it? Fast forward the digital copy of whatever you have. Right? Fast forward it. This is where we are today. Hey, deacon so-and-so, I think your pastor needs a sabbatical. I don't think any of this has to happen. Talk to the pastor. Talk to his wife. Talk to his kids. They're weeping. Wow, we could never do that. That's not right. Why do we get a sabbatical and not anyone else in our church? Well, just hang on. (laughs) So we walked them through it. And so they're coming here, and the first week of their sabbatical is going to be spent mostly sleeping in the grace house next door. All five of them, right? And then we have a family in our church that's letting them stay in their house in Florida for 10 days. Just sleep. Right? So all week long, I've been helping their church disconnect them from his email, his faith church Facebook, bill paying, calls into the church, all this kind of stuff. Right? And all the while, while I'm doing this, I'm thinking, I am so thankful for Grace Church of Menor, where 98% of its membership is serving faithfully in at least in one area, where 65, 70% of our church is involved in spiritual mentoring of one another. Amen. And guess what's happened in that environment? Many hands make light work. So guess who doesn't want to quit? Amen. Right? Right? It's, it's been the lightest burden I've had in a long time. Honest to goodness. Honest to goodness, it's been the lightest burden I've had in a long time. Because you're doing it together. Patience with everybody. Okay? Patience with everybody. And this family, this, now this church, I went out to the church 
face-to-face a week ago Tuesday night, and I had a three-and-a-half-hour Q&A with the whole congregation saying, what can we do to keep our pastor? That was the spirit. So we worked it out. And he's going to be gone for two full months. And you people, you know who you are. You're going to be ministering to him and his family. And this is going to become an opportunity where we get to train your church. Our church gets to train their church on what it means to be a disciple-making church. So they, don't, they have a whole lot more than 20% of the people trying to carry the load. And they get everyone together to, to reach that community. And it's ultimately about the gospel in that community, right? Uh, and sustaining a light, keeping that lampstand lit, so to speak. And it's, uh, it's great as a church to be a part of that. But I just thank you, and I, I love you, and I thank you over and over and over for being patient with me and being patient with each other. And as you know, you found me to maybe be faint-hearted or weak or whatever the situation, you, you've been patient with me and with my family and with each other. And, and may God be praised for that. And may the light of the gospel continue in our community because of that. Okay? This is the nurturing of faithfulness that begins with God, continues with God, and will end with God. This is how it's done in the nurturing of faithfulness. And next week we'll conclude with the natural results. Natural results. And each one of you is going to get a little insert in your Sunday program next week that you've already been given. We're going to do it again. And at the end of that sermon, we're going to talk about a very practical, natural result of God's faithfulness among us. And I'm going to challenge your hearts with an opportunity for 2019. Okay? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you so much for the simplicity of your word. And uh, I trust, Lord, we've been as honest as we possibly could be with the help of the Spirit. Um, Now, whatever we've heard today that we need to go live, give us your grace and ability to do that. And help our love for you and your word and each other to increase more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.